This evening, we have the immense privilege of opening together the Apostle Paul's final letter. Would you turn with me, please, to the letter of 2 Timothy? And we know that this letter is the inspired, inerrant, authoritative word of God. And so we come to it with that reverence this evening. Would you stand with me one more time? I'd like to read this text to us together, and then I'll ask the Lord's blessing on our time of study in the Word. My text for this evening is verses 3 through 7, but I'd like to start with verse 1 and read all the way through then verse 7. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to, my, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Please join me in prayer this evening. Father, we, we come to you. We are your sheep, and we need food. We need strength. We need your wisdom. We're so grateful that you have put your spirit within us to enable us to understand your word and to be changed by it. We ask you, Father, that you would give us insight into this text this evening, that we would humbly receive from you these truths and be encouraged by them, be built up and, and edified by these words so that we as your people may glorify you by our proclamation of the truth, by our edification of one another as we grow up together into the image of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. Thank you, please be seated. As you can see from the title of this letter, we have before us Paul's second letter to his apostolic legate, Timothy. And during the writing of this letter, Timothy was overseeing the church in Ephesus, one of Paul's several churches that he had planted. And the Apostle Paul, during the writing of this letter, as you probably know, was on death row. In fact, he was in the Mamertine prison during the writing of this letter, and shortly after, he was beheaded for preaching the mysteries of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as you read through the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy, it's very clear that, you, that you, can, you can see how Paul viewed Timothy as his successor. He desired to pass on the ministry of the gospel to the Gentiles, to Timothy. And so this letter, 2 Timothy, is filled with powerful exhortations to Timothy to spiritually strengthen him, to urge him to faithfully receive from Paul the baton of ministry. As you read the letter, you can see, you can experience Paul's great sense of urgency. He knew his time was short. 
2 Timothy 4 and verse 6 speaks of this. Paul understood that Timothy had been struggling under the pressures of ministry. Paul recognizes yet the magnitude and the responsibility of ministry that that God had entrusted to Timothy. And he wanted to encourage him as he proclaims the truth and cares for the church. And so Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit in this letter, is seeking one last time to do all he can to equip Timothy for this God-ordained task before him. If we could summarize sort of the, the, the goal of 2 Timothy, it's Paul seeking to prepare the man to perpetuate the ministry and to preserve the message of the gospel through Timothy. And again, I, I think we could all think, we can't relate because we've never been on death row, but we can, we can receive that sense of urgency with these goals that would have brought Paul this letter, especially as he's on the cusp of his martyrdom. The gospel must be preserved. The ministry of the church must go on. Timothy must be prepared to take that baton and by the grace of God, make full proof of his ministry. So with that background in mind, let's look together this evening at the first of many exhortations in this letter, This letter is full of exhortations from Paul to Timothy. Notice verse six. Verse six holds for us the main exhortation of verses three through seven. Verse six, for this reason, Paul says, I remind you, here it is, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God. Fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you, through the laying on of my hands. That's the main idea. If I could summarize the the main idea of this text this evening, it would be, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you. I want you to notice the structure of this passage, how Timothy, or how Paul delivers that exhortation to Timothy. First of all, Paul precedes this exhortation with some memories that are precious to him. Memories that he has of Timothy. Memories that he has of God's work in Timothy. Notice verse three, trace that word I remember throughout this text. So verse three, I thank God whom I serve, the last part of verse three, as I remember you. Verse four, as I remember your tears. Verse five, I am reminded of your faith. And then verse six, transitions from those three memories into this exhortation for this reason, for my memory of you, for my, re- my memory of your tears, for my memory of your faith, I now remind you to fan to flame the gift of God. And then following this exhortation, Paul brings in one last reason for which Timothy should fan and flame the gift of God. Fan into flame the gift of God, Timothy, which is in you, verse seven, for or because God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Everything about this text helps Timothy to understand why he should fan into flame the gift of God that is in him. Each part is intended, intended to motivate him to do so. It's as if Paul is saying to Timothy, Timothy, Fan into flame the gift of God. Why should I do this? Because I remember God's work in your life. 
to prepare you for what he has appointed you to do because you have the Holy Spirit living in you to empower you, to fill you with love, to give you self-discipline, and to enable you to do all that God has called you to do. Now, I want to walk through this text with you together tonight, and before we look at those motivations, I want to begin by just looking at the one exhortation itself and considering its meaning. What is Paul referring to when he says, I want to remind you to fan in the flame the gift of God? Well, let's look at that just by way of three questions. What is Paul referring to by the gift of God? Let's get that clear for our minds. What is the gift of God which is in Timothy? Well, the word gift here is that classic New Testament word that refers to spiritual gifts. What we would see in like Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 4 and 1 Peter 4, each and every believer has received from the Holy Spirit spiritual gifts. 1 Peter 4 categorized them into speaking gifts and serving gifts. And the Holy Spirit who lives in each believer is the one who supplies those gifts, chooses the gifts that we receive, empowers us to use them for the building up of the body of Christ. We also know that that's the gift that Paul is referring to because he says it's in Timothy, the gift which is in you. And the purposes for these gifts is the building up of the body of Christ. Through the use of these gifts, believers evangelize the lost. They edify one another to grow up into Christ-likeness. That's the purpose of these gifts. And so this is the gift that Paul is referring to. Notice the phrase following the gift, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Now that's an interesting phrase, and that helps us to understand a little bit more about what Paul is talking about. In fact, Paul used that phrase already with reference to Timothy's ordination and spiritual gifting. Would you look back with me just for a moment to 1 Timothy chapter 4? Look at 1 Timothy 4, and I want to look at, read to you verses 11 through 16. You'll see the, nearly the same phrase here. Verse 11, Paul writes to Timothy, Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Look at verse 14 in particular. Do not neglect the gift you have which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will both save yourself and your hearers. Apparently from this text, when the apostle Paul laid his hands with the elders on Timothy, there was some sort of a prophetic knowledge that was given about Timothy's gifts. And God used that as the instrument of his receiving those gifts. So in verse 14, Paul reminds Timothy of that unique God-ordained event and exhorts him, don't neglect that gifting. 
It seems reasonable to suggest that Timothy's gifting had to do with his function and office in the body of Christ. And you can see his responsibilities there just surrounding verse 14, verse 11 through 16, all the things that Paul says to him regarding teaching and leadership and public ministry. And now in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 6, Paul is charging Timothy with the same thing. Don't neglect your gift. Fan it into flame, Timothy. Which brings us to our second question for understanding this particular exhortation. What does Paul mean then by fan it into flame? Fan into flame your spiritual gift. Well, if we were to literally define that word, it has to do with rekindling a fire, stoking up the the heat, setting the bellows in motion. Of course, Paul is using that phrase illustratively and exhorting Timothy to spiritually revive something within him that seems to be fading. Now, I want to be clear about that. Paul is not indicating that Timothy's faith is somehow dying out, meaning his salvation. That can't never happen. The gift of salvation, the gift of saving faith is certain. In fact, Paul will reaffirm that in verse 5. I'm reminded of your sincere faith. But Timothy could, for various reasons, which we'll explore, neglect understanding his spiritual gift, exercising it, developing it, maturing it. Timothy could quench the Holy Spirit, as we see in 1 Thessalonians 5.19, which refers to spiritual gifts being quenched he could fail to use it as he ought to so I think a good definition of fanning into flame the spiritual gift is simply to invigorate one's spiritual efforts to biblically understand lovingly exercise and humbly advance one's spiritual gifts for the building up of the body of Christ for the honor of Christ so Paul says fan into flame the gift of God which is in you. Now, one final introductory question before we dive into the arguments. Should we apply this text to ourselves today? Sometimes that gets a little bit interesting when you're in the pastoral epistles because we say, well, I'm not Timothy. I'm not a pastor. I'm not a missionary. I'm not an apostolic delegate. And of course, the answer is yes. This is written to Timothy, but it's for us. And I really want all of us to keenly sense our need for this text. We know that this text was written to a directly to an apostolic delegate, but like Timothy, every true believer has been given spiritual gifts by the Holy Spirit. And just like Timothy, every true believer has been called to build up the body of Christ by evangelizing unbelievers by edifying fellow believers unto Christ's likeness as they use those spiritual gifts. And that's why the body of Christ has been placed here by God, right? That's why we're here in this location, in this city, at this time, in this body of believers. This is all by God's appointment. And every true believer here has spiritual gifts for the building up of the body of Christ. Each of our families, even in our workplaces and our communities. But just like Timothy, each one of us have or will experience various afflictions, pressures, challenges, difficulties that will sorely press us 
to neglect the faithful exercise of our spiritual gifts which are in us by the Holy Spirit. And would you agree that we have felt such pressures to a greater degree over the last few years? I wonder how many of us this evening have felt the pressure from a greater measure of disagreement within the body of Christ over various surfacing issues. I wonder of us if we felt a pressure uh, from a growing hostility, even from unbelieving community toward Christ, toward his truth, but directed at us as Jesus promised it would be, possibly even from our own friends and family. Maybe we felt the pressure of an increase of physical setbacks, personal illness, financial burdens, various other physical, temporal issues. Listen, all of these pressures can weigh us down, can set us back, seek to pull us back and discourage us from exercising our spiritual gifts in the body of Christ as we ought to or functioning as the church that Christ called us to be. Think about it for a minute. Who are we as the body of Christ? I love how Paul puts it in 1 Timothy chapter three. He says, you are the household of God. God is your father. You are his children, your brothers and sisters. He says, you're the church of the living God. He, Paul said that, that to Timothy in the midst of Ephesus that was known for its big temple of Diana. He says, no, you're the church of the living God. God lives in you through his spirit. He's filled you. He's saved you. He's bought you with the blood of Christ. That's who we are. And because that's who we are, Paul then goes on to say, you're the pillar and the buttress of the truth. You are to, you're gifted to hold fast the truth of the gospel, to preserve it just as Christ gave it and to hold it high for all to see and hear. And the Holy Spirit has indwelled and gifted us for such calling, even in the midst of tremendous pressures and threats and obstacles. And that's why we, like Timothy, need to hear this message, to be encouraged. I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God that is in you. So why should we? Why should Timothy? I want to go through this outline, and I'm really going to focus historically on Paul's work with Timothy, and then we'll wait to the very end to kind of bring it to our own hearts in application. So here's the reasons. Here's the reasons that Paul gives to Timothy to fan the flame the gift of God. Number one, because of a legacy of godly service. Number one, because of a legacy of godly service. Look at verse three. Paul says, I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. Well, we know Paul is Timothy's mentor. He's his father in the faith. And one of, one of the most important things that a spiritual mentor can do to his, for, his, for his disciple is to pray for him, and you see that here. And Paul's prayers for Timothy are not just hit or miss spontaneously when he happens to think about Timothy, but notice he prays for him constantly, night and day. And as he prays for Timothy, he's filled with an attitude of what? Thanksgiving. 
He's so grateful for Timothy. And notice that, just that Paul didn't always pray about the problems he saw in Timothy's life, but that as he remembered Timothy, he was grateful for God's work in him. But what specifically is Paul thinking about when he says, Timothy, I'm grateful for you when I remember you? I think, as I look at this verse and try to connect the thoughts, I think that that Paul is thankful for Timothy because God has chosen Timothy for Paul. God has chosen Timothy to be Paul's successor in a legacy of godly service. Follow my train of thought, if you would, please, carefully. Paul views his apostolic ministry we see here for the sake of Christ and the gospel and the church as service to God. Notice that word there, I thank God whom I serve. And that word serve is a unique word for service. It's a special word used in the New Testament. It refers to religious service, particularly referring to the rituals and rites of worship that God would have prescribed for his people to worship him. It can even refer to the discharging of priestly duties, his sacred office as a priest as he would offer sacrifices to God. That's how Paul viewed his life of ministry as a service of worship to God, as a sacrifice of praise to God, a reflection of God's glory, a display of the infinite worth of God. As Paul preached, it was to magnify God. It was an offering of worship unto God. Earthly sacrifices that he made, and we know there are many, you can see the lists of Paul, personal sacrifices, particularly in 2 Corinthians. They were an offering of worship hardships he suffered, endured, sinners he called to salvation, even the godly life he lived, which you can see there when Paul says a clear conscience. Whenever Paul says a clear conscience in the pastoral epistles, he's talking about a life lived that doesn't assault the conscience, a godly life, a Christ-like life. All of that in Paul's mind was an offering of sacrificial praise to the Lord. Paul delivered the gospel of God to the Gentiles so that they might know Christ, to trust in him, to glorify him as they were matured in Christ's likeness. That was his unique calling, the apostle to the Gentiles. And in the process of doing that, Paul certainly suffered and struggled by the strength of Christ, but Paul endured it all to show the worth of God by his sacrificial service. Now, as we notice here in this verse, Paul also realized that he was one among many men like this. It seems to be at least part of what he means by that phrase, as did my ancestors. I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors. Paul considered himself as one man in a long line of godly men who who had been chosen to speak his word and call his people to salvation from the Jews and the Gentiles. The prophets of God from Moses to John the Baptist and certainly the apostles of Christ were in this line that Paul has in mind. And so now, with respect to this legacy of godly service, Paul thinks of Timothy as the next one in line. God's appointment, and he gives thanks to God for that. Clearly, Paul knows that God has appointed and given Timothy as his successor to continue that service of worship, that legacy of godly service unto Christ. And so Paul's passing on that mantle. And that's what Paul's doing all throughout these letters. First Timothy 1.18, Paul says to, to Timothy, I charge you 
as would a superior officer handing down the command, uh, 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 an order from that superior officer to the, to the next in line. I charge you, Timothy. That's why Paul refers to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.11 as, O man of God. That title is used for the legacy of godly men like Moses and Samuel and David and Elijah and Elisha. And so Paul prayerfully remembers Timothy and considers all that God has done in his life to prepare him for this role and he's filled with thanksgiving. In fact, turn with me to Philippians chapter two. This is a fantastic text to see Paul's affirmation of Timothy. Philippians 2, verses 19 to 24. I love this description of Timothy. Verse 19 says, Paul is speaking to the Philippian church and he says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. Listen, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Paul prayerfully remembers Timothy and sees him as that next one in line to take the baton of ministry in the gospel and keep it going. And these memories of Paul written, are written to elicit a spiritual response from Timothy. They were meant to call Timothy to gratitude for what God had, had done to bring him to that place, uh, uh, an attitude of love and, and faith, action, endurance. It's as if Paul is saying, Timothy, God has called you to be the next in a line of long, a long line of godly men who has served in the ministry of the gospel. Timothy, God has called you, he's equipped you, he's gifted you and given you to me so that I could train you and, and for you to take my place. Timothy, I pray for you constantly as you take up the baton of ministry. Timothy, I'm so thankful to God for you. God has given you a legacy of godly service which is a great privilege and a great trust that must not be discounted or squandered. So, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you. Second reason that Paul writes to Timothy for this exhortation, number two, a legacy of genuine love. Timothy has enjoyed a legacy of genuine love. Look at verse four. Paul's second memory as I remember your tears and long to see you that I may be filled with joy. That's that word longing. Paul has great affection for Timothy. As Paul's praying for Timothy and thanking God for him, he also remembered their most recent and what would be their final parting on the earth The Apostle Paul experienced two Roman imprisonments, as you know. The first of those imprisonments we call house arrest in Rome. That's where he wrote the prison epistles. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon. Paul was released for a short time following that imprisonment, that house arrest, and after his release, he came to visit Timothy just like he said he would. 
in 1 Timothy 3.14. So following that visit with Paul, uh, Paul and Timothy, Paul continued to travel proclaiming the gospel, visiting disciples, strengthening the churches until he was arrested in Troas. Then he was incarcerated in the Mamertine prison in Rome and then finally martyred. When Paul left Timothy in Ephesus for the last time, Timothy was so filled with grief that he wept. You see that in this text. I remember your tears. What kind of relationships would cause us to experience such deep, strong emotions upon parting? Well, relationships that are filled with that mutual love. I long to see you, Timothy. Paul and Timothy had that kind of relationship like a father with a son. And you see how Paul felt about Timothy. He wanted him to come to him. I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. In fact, look at 2 Timothy 4 verse 9. I mean, Paul is in his last days on earth and who does he want to come to the, to the prison in Rome to see him? Verse 9, do your best to come to me soon. He wants Timothy there. He wants to see him. As quickly as, as Timothy can be there, he's calling him to come. There was a great mutual love that they shared together in the gospel. It's a strong love. And Paul directed Timothy's attention to that legacy of genuine love for him because he benefited from it. Timothy benefited from that relationship. He was spiritually nurtured in that relationship of love. And so now, even in this time of great affliction and discouragement, Paul is calling Timothy to remain loyal, to be faithful, even in the difficulties, to reciprocate that costly love that he has received. It's a loyal love for those who had invested in Timothy that would spur him on to be integral, faithful, godly, persistent in service to Christ and his church. I know each of you have felt that as well. Those who have sacrificially loved you to bring you up in the, in the Lord's word and you think when, you, when you're tempted to go astray or to give up, you think, no, I, it's too much has been invested in my life for me to bail out now, especially when you think of the sacrifice of Christ. We're not paying anybody back but we're called to be loyal. It's love for those who have sacrificed greatly for the cause of the gospel that would demand loyalty and nothing less from Timothy. And it's the love of Christ that would hold them together. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14, the love of Christ constrains us. So how can a good and true servant of Christ cease using his spiritual gifts for the edification of the church and the proclamation of the gospel in the world. There's too much costly love invested in the cause of Christ for Timothy to become dispassionate and disloyal now. And that kind of love existed between Paul and Timothy in Christ through the Spirit. And so Paul writes, because of the love that we have shared in the gospel and that you've benefited from and that you've grown up in, I remind you, now you fan into flame the gift of God that is given to you. The third motivation this evening, verse five. Number three, a legacy of sincere faith. Verse five, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. 
Paul draws Timothy's attention to his own faith. He says, your sincere faith, Timothy. What does that mean? Unfeigned, undisguised, unhypocritical, genuine. Timothy is not a fake. Paul tells him that. You're real, Timothy. God has done this work in you. His faith is genuine. Then Paul tells him that his faith is the same kind of faith as was in his mother and his grandmother. You see it. It dwelled first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And Timothy certainly knew the kind of faith that his parents enjoyed, his grandmother and his mother. He'd been nurtured by it since he was a child. Acts 16.1, we, we discover that Timothy's father was an unbelieving Greek. His mother became a believer most likely under Paul's ministry. In 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17, we learn that Timothy had been brought up in the sacred writings, the scriptures, and that made him wise for salvation. He learned the scriptures, he learned faith from a child through his grandmother and mother. And then he says, Paul says to Timothy, I am sure that it dwells in you also. That's what Timothy needed to hear. Timothy, I am soundly convinced that saving faith just like your mother had, just like your grandmother had, is in you. It's taken up residence in your heart. How does Paul intend for that memory to affect Timothy? Well, Paul wants Timothy to be encouraged as he strongly affirms the genuineness of that God-given faith. Paul is calling Timothy to recognize what God has done in his own heart. See it for what it is. Regard it. Respond to that. That God has wrought genuine faith in his own heart and his family. Look at what God has done through the Holy Spirit. Take heart, Timothy. Know that God will preserve your faith. Continue your faith. Develop it. Strengthen it. And complete the work of faith that was begun. Philippians 1.6, right? He who began a good work in you will complete it at the day of Jesus Christ. When God chooses to save, to change someone, to use a person for his glory, he ordains the means of giving to that person saving faith, which include those who teach that person the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when God gives genuine faith, he gives it for an eternal purpose. It's not to be lost. It's not purposeless. Therefore, God will sustain that faith. He preserves it. He nurtures it. He develops it through the word, through the spirit. He strengthens it. He matures that faith. And God will empower and, and do all his will through those to whom he has given genuine faith and make them fruitful for his church, for his kingdom, for his glory. And so Paul is calling Timothy to take heart, be stirred, Trust in the purposes and power of God at work within you. Sometimes it takes someone from the outside looking in and saying, you know what, here's what I see in you. Here's what I see God doing in you. And Paul is pulling Timothy up out of his discouragement and his fear and calling him to take heart and to go to work because God is genuinely at work in him. And so, again, Paul says, Look at this faith. It's genuine in you. It's from God. I remind you, fan into flame the gift of God that is in you. Now, a final reason this evening for this exhortation, verses six and seven, 
And I think this is the most powerful reason of the four. I love this, so encouraging. For this reason I remind you, Timothy, fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying out of my hands. For, because God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. That is good news. Paul says to Timothy, the gift that God gave you, that you have within you, did not come to you with a spirit of fear. When God saved you, he did not give you a spirit of fear. When God regenerated you and gave you genuine faith to trust in him and resurrected spiritually and gave you spiritual gifts to serve the body of Christ and to exalt Christ, it didn't come with a spirit of fear. That word fear, what is, what is Paul talking about there? That's not a typical word for fear either. It's a word that means timidity, cowardice. Paul knows that Timothy has been struggling with this, with timidity, with fear, with cowardice, with the people among whom he serves. And that's dampened his exercise of his spiritual gifts. I want you to think with me for a moment the assignment that Paul gave to Timothy in Ephesus. Here's what, here's what Timothy was called to. A church of difficult people with unbiblical doctrine. 1 Timothy 1. A church with angry, quarrelsome men. 1 Timothy 2. A church with immodest, outspoken, insubmissive women. 1 Timothy 2. Unqualified elders and deacons. 1 Timothy 3. A people who are gripped by legalism and prosperity. You see that in 1 Timothy 4 and 6. He was called to confront their unlawful use of the law. And when you start stepping on human pride and self-righteousness, that's not easy. He was called to confront their love of money and selfishness, their neglect of those whom they should have been caring for. Timothy's young, First Timothy 4. He's not confident in his abilities. He probably has a timid temperament. He's poor in health, First Timothy 5. And now, Christian persecution has greatly intensified. If Timothy were to publicly and passionately exercise his spiritual gifts as he was called to, he would fear that what would happen to Paul would happen to him. In fact, it seems from 2 Timothy chapter 1 that Timothy was afraid of associating with Timothy because associations can lead to accusations as well. All this has apparently dampened Timothy's exercise of his spiritual gifts, fear, timidity, cowardice. But then Paul reminds Timothy of a reality that is far more powerful than all of those pressures that are intimidating Timothy. Timothy, God did not give you a spirit of fear, of cowardice. The fear that is gripping you didn't come from God. It's a feeling that comes from earthly thinking, of elevating men and women in our thinking. It's not worthy of Christ. It's not worthy of the Father. It's not worthy of the Spirit that dwells in you. It must not fill you and control you, Timothy, as if Paul is saying this. God has given you a spirit, capital S, of power, love, and self-control. It's that spirit who accompanies your gift, who has given you your gifts. God has sent that to you. 
and he will enable you to exercise your gift according to the purpose and plan that he has ordained for you. That spirit will bear you through your fears and supply to you all the strength that you need to bear fruit for God. So what kind of spirit had God given to Timothy to enable him? God put his own spirit within Timothy. Look at those three words. A spirit of power, love, self-control. This is so helpful to me. Power, the spirit of God within us is a spirit of power. What does that mean? Strength, ability, inherent indwelling power, power to perform whatever service God ordains and commands of us. Power to remain godly in the doing of the service. Power to influence others for the sake of Christ. That's, that's a quality of the Spirit of God. Power. In fact, 2 Corinthians, I was encouraged by this text the last week. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Take this text home with you. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. Paul writes upon his leaving Ephesus and a a very difficult circumstance happened to him. He says, we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Have you ever felt that way? Certainly not like Paul did. But we felt burdened, utterly burdened beyond our strength from time to time. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Why? Why did God allow such circumstances to, to happen to his servant? Verse 10, or verse, second part of verse 9. But that was to make us what? Rely not on ourselves, but on God who can do what? Who raises the dead. It's that kind of power that the Spirit of God possesses and that Spirit indwells those whom he gifts for the work of ministry. Of course, we know Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. He who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that is at work, where? Within us. It's a spirit of power. It's a spirit of love a loyal brotherly affection that makes a believer willing to sacrifice self in the pursuit of the good of another, of another's greatest good, even though they can't, even though that person might not deserve it. Of course, none of us deserve love, right? We deserve God's judgment, and yet God has shown us such great grace. That's a quality of the Spirit. Romans 5, 5, the Spirit of God pours the love of God into our hearts. Galatians 5, 22 and 23, the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, so on. We have within us, Timothy had within a spirit of power and love, but also self-control. This is another unique word. There's, there's, a, there's a few wonderful, unique words in this text. In fact, this word for self-control here, this is the only time it occurs in the New Testament. Self-control, it's, it's a sound judgment a sound judgment that combines both prudence and self-discipline. Some translations have a sound mind. That's a, that's a good translation of this word. The spiritual capacity to say or do the right thing 
at the right time with the right attitude and to restrain oneself from saying and doing something at the wrong time, something wrong, something untruthful or with the wrong attitude. And again, that's the quality of the Spirit himself as well. John 16, 13, Jesus says the Spirit of God will communicate to the disciples only those things that are given to him. Matthew 10, 19 and 20, Jesus promises this to his apostles. He says, when you stand before the judges, don't worry in that day what you're to say. In that day, the spirit of your father will give you the words to speak. That's the idea. The spirit of a sound mind. I need to know what to say when I'm exercising my spiritual gift. I need to know what not to say. And so Paul is reminding Timothy that this is the spirit that God had given to him. And this spirit was a constant and powerful resident within him to enable him to do the will of God. So think about that. When Timothy would look at the task before him to serve the church and speak the truth and at the same time will remember his youthfulness, his weakness, his illness, his inability, his personal limitations, and then when he, would, when he would observe and experience the suffering that would accompany a godly life in Christ, just like Paul promised, and think that there was no way he could fulfill his ministry, it was then that Paul was encouraging Timothy, remember the spirit that dwells within you, the spirit of power to enable you to do just what God has called you to do. And then when Timothy would, in, would encounter immature, selfish, worldly, hypocritical, rebellious, even hostile people whom he was commissioned to serve, to whom he was called to preach the gospel and build up in the faith, and he would feel his desire and affection grow cold, it was then that he needed to remember that God had given him the spirit of love, love for Christ, love for the lost, love for the church that would enable him to be willing to make temporary earthly sacrifices for eternal heavenly gains. When Timothy would feel the weighty, intimidating, exacting demand of speaking the right words at the right time with the right attitude, he would know the spirit of God within him would bring the word of Christ to his memory and teach him what to say giving him ability to restrain fleshly words and speak the truth in love. Paul is declaring that the timidity, cowardice, fear before people has no place in Christian ministry and the proclamation of the gospel. Earthly fears must not cause Timothy to halt the exercise of his spiritual gifts. Because within him, God had given his own spirit. That's an, that's, an un, that's an amazing thought. Like Jesus said, those who love Christ, in that person, the Father comes to dwell. The Spirit, the Son, dwell through the Spirit. The Spirit of power, love, and self-control reside in that person. Therefore, at the door of every opportunity, whether speaking or serving, whether evangelizing or edifying, Timothy was, not to, was to forget himself, to fix his attention on the primary audience, right? And remember the spirit who dwells in him. And so for that reason, Paul says, I remind you to fan and to flame the gift of God that is in you. In closing this evening, let me bring Paul's exhortation to Timothy to bear upon our lives. 
And I encourage you to take this text home and think through it. There's no way that one person in a few words could apply it to all who are here. The Spirit of God can do that. Brothers and sisters, have you been struggling with fears? Timidity? In the exercise of your spiritual gifts? Speaking the truth to one another, to others, serving in love? What pressures have been holding you back from being whom God has called you to be? First, please understand that Christ has called you to make disciples, to teach unbelievers the gospel. Christ has called you to that, right? Matthew 28, 19, and 20. We know this. But also, Christ has called you to build up the body of Christ. We gather here to grow up into the image of Christ, right? Ephesians 4. And how does that happen? As the saints do the work of ministry, speaking the truth in love to one another. Yes? We know this, Ephesians 4. And Christ has given to you a spiritual gifting to accomplish these things. 1 Corinthians 12 says this. And that's not the life calling of a few spiritual elite people, right? That's the life of every redeemed child of God. It's not part of your life. It's not what you're to do if you have time left over. It's not sitting on the back burner. That is your life as a child of God. It permeates every aspect of your life at home as you teach your children at work when you share the gospel and work with the excellence of Christ when you gather in the body of Christ, in the community, etc. This is who we are and what we do is Christ's church. So what are the earthly fears and timidities that presently are dampening the exercise of your spiritual gifts and holding you back from walking worthy of the calling to which you've been called? Are you fearful of negative human responses? It's easy to be, isn't it? Too easy to be. Are you fearful of personal loss for being associated with Christ? Are you timid because of a sense of personal inability, deficiency, weakness? We experience this as frail people. Are you timid because of what other people will think about you, even in the body of Christ? It's too easy for us to calculate. What will other people think of me? Are you timid in the exercise of your spiritual gifts because you struggle to love the people that you know need, you need to speak to or serve. Sometimes that holds us back. I don't feel love. Are you shutting down the exercise of your spiritual gifts because you're afraid of saying the wrong words at the wrong time or having the wrong attitude? Dear ones, listen, there is great hope for us who feel these kinds of fears. We have the word of God in our hands we have the Spirit of God in our hearts. That's what Paul tells Timothy. God has given to you not a spirit of fear, but of power, love, self-control. For every good work that God has prepared for us, he will, through his Spirit, supply all the power, love, and self-control we need to do his will. It might not be exactly for what you think you will use it for, but it will be for what God has planned. Ephesians 2 
8 through 10 tells us that. He will supply to us power to overcome our weaknesses and deficiencies. He will supply to us love so that we may serve and speak truth even to those whom we struggle to love and those whom have hurt us and even been hostile to us. He will supply to us self-control so that we may say the right words at the right time with the attitudes of Christ. He fills us with his word. You may not feel like this is true as you anticipate a ministry opportunity, but as you walk toward it by faith and be obedient to Christ, he will give you just what you need when you need it through the Spirit of God. And so because of these truths, Paul says, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you. And I want to call you even, recall to your mind the spiritual legacy of godly service and love and faith that you have. Think of that. Think of the many men and women that whom God has chosen and lined up down through the centuries until finally, God's, in God's providence, someone gave you the scriptures, gave you the gospel, discipled you in the truth, nurtured your faith, endured with you through trials, exhorted you to turn from sin, loved you well, sacrificially, equipped you to serve, spoke the truth to you, And why did God do that? Why did God give you all that grace? So that by his grace, you can pass on what you've been given by the exercise of your own spiritual gifts. So that you may encourage Christ-likeness in one another and proclaim Christ to the world around you and magnify Christ. I think of the, the fifth verse of the hymn, Jesus, I, my cross have taken. Listen to this. Soul, then know thy full salvation. Rise over sin and fear and care. Joy to find in every station, something still to do or bear. Think what spirit dwells within thee. Think what father's smiles are thine. Think that Jesus died to win thee. Child of heaven, canst thou repine? What grace we've been given. This is why Paul says, fan and deflame the spiritual gift that is in you. Before I pray this evening, let me give you one final thought. I want you to know this too. Only those who are children of God have the Spirit of God within them. Romans 8, 9 says, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Romans 8.14 says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. If you don't have the Spirit of God, you're not a son or a daughter. If you're not a son or a daughter, you don't have the Spirit of God. So I want to ask you this evening, are you a child of God? Are you a child of God? Maybe you would say, I don't know. How can I become a child of God? 1 John or the, the gospel of John, chapter 1, 12 and 13 says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Did you hear that? Those who receive Jesus Christ and believe in his name are given the right to become children of God. 
So what does that mean then? to receive Jesus Christ and believe in his name. Well, first of all, please understand why you need to receive Jesus Christ. Because God is righteous. He's our holy, righteous creator God who has made us in his image and commanded us to live reflecting his glory. How good of a job have we done of that? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so you are sinful just like the rest of us. And God will judge you for your sin if you continue in it. Because God is good. He's a perfect judge. He won't be bribed. He won't be, he won't be misled. And you will never be able to satisfy God's justice by what you try to do for yourself. Not one good work of righteousness will make God happy with us. God is only satisfied with the righteousness of one. Who's that? Jesus Christ. And so God is also merciful and gracious and loving and he loves to save sinners by his own doing. And so he sent his son, Jesus Christ, the God-man to rescue sinners. Jesus lived. He lived the perfect life fulfilling all of God's law. Why? So that those sinners who trust in him would be clothed in that righteousness. Jesus died. Why? So that our guilt, those who trust in him, would be transferred to him and he would receive the punishment we deserve in our place. And Christ rose. Why? To to grant us spiritual life and eternal life. And God promises that all who receive Christ will be given the gift of eternal life and receive the Spirit. That means to accept Jesus for who he is, the God-man, God incarnate, eternal son made man and rest in what he did for you. It's not resting in a prayer. It's not resting in experience. It's resting in what Christ did. He lived, he died, he rose and by faith you can become united with Christ and God will declare you righteous on the basis of what Christ did in Christ alone. That's what it means to receive Christ. And if you will, God promises, all who come to me, he will never cast out, but raise them up on the last day, John 6 tells us. So this evening, if you did not come here a child of God, I pray that you will leave here a child of God. Would you stand with me? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, as the body of Christ, we all have been given spiritual gifting to serve, to speak, to build up the body of Christ, to build up one another for your glory. And yet so many things press us to be fearful, timid, to not use what you have given to us for your glory. Father, take these truths with which Paul encouraged Timothy and encourage our hearts. May we rest in the glorious power of the Holy Spirit within us and speak your word in truth and love. We pray that you would save anyone who is hearing this message this evening. Would you draw them by your spirit to be your child? Magnify Christ before their eyes, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening from Truth Community Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. You can find more church information and other helpful materials at thetruthpulpit.com, teaching God's people God's Word. This message is copyrighted, all rights reserved.